but it's a curiosity as to where we are, what we are. Existence, the physical universe, is basically playful. Welcome to the Curious Humans podcast. I'm your host, Johnny Miller. Hello there, Curious Humans. Dr. John Churchill is a fellow Brit who spent 15 years training and teaching great seal meditation in an Indo-Tibetan lineage. And he's a founding member of the Integral Institute led by well-known philosopher Ken Wilber. Over the past 25 years, John has developed his style of practice that weaves together somatically based contemplative practices that integrate psychodynamic healing, adult development, and meditation. This was a super powerful conversation that touched on how trauma fuses our awareness to our attentional system and what he calls some of the fundamental interior science breakthroughs. This episode of Curious Humans is also brought to you by the one and only Nervous System Mastery. This is my flagship five-week bootcamp that's designed to equip you with evidence-backed protocols for cultivating calm and emotional regulation. Our third cohort is running in spring, and applications are currently open until April the 1st. And honestly, if this conversation resonates with you, then I think you'd be a really good fit for this cohort. The curriculum represents my attempts to distill everything that I've learned in recent years about how to create the conditions for our nervous systems flourishing. And previous students have shared how taking part not only improved their sleep and quality of relationships, but also tap into deeper states of joy, clarity, and confidence in their lives. We've had over 400 students complete this training, and many have said that it's been the most impactful thing they've ever done for their personal growth. So if you're interested, you can find more details and apply to join this upcoming cohort at nsmastery.com. Okay, without further ado, Please enjoy this extremely insightful conversation with Dr. John Churchill. Welcome to the Curious Humans podcast, John. Thanks, Johnny. Good to be here. Yeah, it's a real pleasure to have you here. How are you feeling right now in three words? Present, open and awake. Hmm. Well, I imagine this conversation will go... How am I feeling right now? Uh, Cold, <laughs> curious, <laughs> and excited. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I, I think this will go in a ton of different directions. But um, before we dive in, I'd love to hear, were you exceptionally curious as a child? And if so, could you tell me a story about something that you were curious about? Well, I don't know if I was exceptionally curious because I really wasn't gauging other people's level of curiosity. (laughs) um, But in my own experience, I was definitely curious um, and and continue to be. I mean, I think that childhood was such, uh, there was a lot of space in my childhood to be curious. Um, what comes to mind right now, we had a farmhouse in um, Spain, up in the mountains. And um, I would spend hours watching ants. Like, like I was so fascinated by like 
by the the level of of um, synchronization and the the roads and the you know these where we were in Spain there were like just these vast tracks of ants that would go into colonies and you would see the big ones and the small ones so I would spend just a lot of time lying on my belly just um, just curious and watching and sometimes even like listening like what is this so childhood having the opportunity to be curious I mean, curiosity is an inherently positive and, and pleasurable and engaging state to be in um mm -hmm. so yeah i was a, i was a curious kid hmm. yeah were there any stories or myths that really resonated with you when you were growing up <laughs> um star wars <laughs> um i was told i was told that the first time i think i was five years old when star wars came out mm -hmm. um and i was told that when we went to the, the movie theater, I stood up in the seat, jumped up and down, shouting Star Wars, Star Wars, Star Wars, and had to be like manhandled back into my seat. So apparently, whatever myth, and this, I didn't even know anything about Star Wars. So apparently, whatever the the mythic structures were underneath that um, mm. spoke to me. Oh, I mean, mm. of course, all, I mean, I, I love stories, but that just stands out as like Star Wars, Star Wars, Star Wars. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, I, I can kind of see like the the rebelling against the empire threads that have maybe come alive in your yeah, <laughs> later <right>. years. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I, I heard on the Stoa, I think it was, that you had a, you described it as like a strong awakening in your teenage years. And when I heard that, like the idea of my experiencing that in the context of like a British private school was, is almost like absurd. And so I'm, I'm wondering what was that experience like for you and how were you, like, how were you supported through that, um, at that early age? Yeah. Yeah. Well, actually, luckily, um, I came back from boarding school when I was 14. So it didn't happen in, you know, in a boarding okay. school, cause that would have been really crazy making. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> but what was, what, what supported me in that process? Is that, is that your question? Mm, yep. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think internally, um, internally, I, I've always had a really good, um, a deep trust in the wisdom of my own experience. Right, that and that what arises within me is workable, whatever it is. So, um, in that sense, maybe I've met the unconscious more from the outside, hmm. out rather than coming up from inside. Like from inside, I'm pretty conf uh, confident with that, um, and um, yeah, like a very deep sense of faith and trust in the sacred. And then I had um, strong women 
I had a strong mother, still have a strong mother and a, and a strong grandmother, both of whom were interested in um, psychology, contemplative practice, those kinds of things. So um, the like the ground was already like I had already started meditating and doing yoga by by like twelve. Like I'd been in a, <laughs> that was kind of part of the family. Wow. family culture. That's, so that's amazing. And so I had also I had read a lot. So even by the time like, by the time I think I must have been seventeen that this awakening happened, I um, was probably more well-read in that field than most people will ever be in, you know, in their lives. So, so I think that that also, like having some kind of cognitive frameworks, um, you know, I was really, uh, really enjoyed Jung. Um, so I think I, I was like as prepared as I could have been for something like that happening at an age which where it's a little, you know, you, 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 it's a little challenging because you're meant to be working on developing a sense of self. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. Wow. That's quite a, it's a radically different experience of childhood than I think <laughs> I had. That's very powerful. Uh -huh. um, yeah. And I, how, how did you come to be initiated into the Indo-Tibetan lineage and traditions? Uh, well, at a certain point of trying to do it myself, uh, and, um, you know, I recognize that it's really, it's important to find teachers. And, uh, you know, I, try, traveled to India when I was like 18 and spent like a good few months look searching there. And I didn't, for some reason that wasn't, um, I went up to Dharamsala and tried to find some great Tibetan master. Didn't find a great Tibetan master. Uh, um, eventually went, eventually spent like a year and a half at Sami Ling Tibetan monastery in Scotland. Didn't find what I was looking for there. Um, but, but, but in terms of the psychotechnology, it became pretty clear that the Tibetans had probably the most sophisticated living psychotechnology that was, that's available. Um, so yeah, I started, you know, I started studying Tibetan Buddhism when I was maybe around 18, uh, but maybe more like a Gnostic in the sense that I'm interested in studying all of the systems, like, you know, to see what's true. I think mm. I, I approach contemplative systems more like an engineer mm. than a than a believer in the sense mm. of how does this work? What is it doing? Um, and I, and I could, I did sit in a number of other traditions and then I, and then about, Nearly 20 years ago now, um, was it 18, 17 years ago, I met my, um, my mentor who's passed away recently, Dr. Daniel Brown. And um, you know, studied very closely, had a very close apprenticeship with him for, for 15 years. And um, we, uh, he moved his office to the center that my wife and I had in Boston. And I studied psychology with him and... Um, studied into Tibetan psychology. So 
he he taught me a lot about um, pedagogy. I think mm-hmm. that it wasn't you know the you know the awakening is one thing, but then how do you how do you help other people awaken, uh, and and what are the stages of that? That's more what I learned from my teachers, mm-hmm. right? Rather than necessarily. Um, them helping me deepen my own realization. Mm, right. It kind of reminds me of Zach Stein's idea of teacherly authority and, and like how how to kind of shepherd someone's own innate curiosity and, and desire to learn. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and now I kind of find myself to some extent on the other on the on the other side, I've never really been a card carrying Indo-Tibetan Buddhist practitioner. <laughs> um, you know, and now my apprenticeship is finished. I find myself on the uh, on the on the other side of that um, that fence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I, something that I really appreciate about your work is this: what feels like a capacity to braid together different lineages and different ideas and traditions, and something I'd love to explore here is I was thinking earlier how um, science has kind of uh, given this, these, these breakthroughs over the last several hundred years and these moments of like Copernican revolutions were of like, you know, realizing that the earth is actually going around the sun, things like this. And it feels like there's a parallel in the interior sciences that, that these, there have been like equally powerful breakthroughs in the last kind of couple of thousand years. And I know this might take a while to, to fully unpack, but could you walk through some of these like fundamental interior science um, breakthroughs and, and maybe some of the associated psychotechnologies that have come along for the ride? Wow. Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so if we look at just purely from the perspective of the, the psychotechnologies and how they've evolved. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you know, we see um, in terms of like the human exploration of the psyche, there's definitely phases of how that technology has been explored and developed. And I don't necessarily believe that, um, you know, like my understanding of history is a little bit different from most people's understanding. So um, I, I experience much larger cycle. I mean, that the last 10,000 years has just been one cycle in something you know, much, much larger. So, but these things get lost and then they have to get be rediscovered again. I mean, the first kind of level of practice, if you will, that it, as we explore is like the, the shamanic levels of consciousness, right? And, and um, those used to be a lot more open, um, a lot more open access, right? Whether it's through plant medicine or sacred sexuality. Um, you know, I think we've lost over the last couple of thousand years, the trauma in the West has been particular, 
particularly the loss of access to sacred world at that very basic level. And by basic level, I mean like the ability to be in relationship with the ancestors and the, you know, the other dimensions of reality um, that in prior times, the veils were a little bit thinner hmm. and particularly the, you know, the, the history of, of, of how Christianity has kind of uh, inhibited and, sh- and shut out access to, to, to dynamics of our, of our own psyche. So we don't have much of a, indigenous tradition left in the in the west you know there are some you know druid and shamanic um technicians but you see you see that more generally in more indigenous cultures where they've managed to keep those you know those practices alive but as we get into the more advanced um you know what we might recognize as kind of develop of kind of contemplative technologies um you know all, all of these more developed, and by developed, I mean like uh, literate, scholastic, academic, the acad- all these traditions that had academies, you know, generally the first level of training had to do with, um, you know, training the attentional system, mm-hmm. um, calming yep. the mind down, developing stability of awareness. And then that's super important in terms of calming uh, cognition, you know, the, the fluctuation of thought and developing stability so that you can then look deeper into your own experience. So, um, you know, Buddhism itself went through a number of cycles of development. In some ways, these cycles got more to do with um, the individual's capacity. So maybe it's more useful to talk about Leo, to talk about the individual's journey. Like in the beginning of Leo, in the beginning of practice, right, um, once you calm the mind down, that's the kind of the first stage. And for many people, that could take a long, a long time. Many people don't ever like complete that, Mm -hmm. right? Um, once you, as you're doing that, then you can begin to come to understand in your direct experience how reactivity is operating. Mm-hmm. So cause and effect, like you begin to recognize, oh, there's there's reactivity in my system. There's trauma in my system, mm-hmm. right? So in my mind, the big, a big foundation of, of contemplative work is the recognition of trauma and of conditioning. And of beginning to become more present and to stop the momentum of the traumatic reactivity that's, that keeps you, you know, that keeps you engaged in us engaged in, in cycles of avoidance of our experience and doing and, and engaged in behaviors that aren't connected with mm. what we really want. Yeah. And I d- imagine d- that you know, you know, in your own journey. Yeah. Yeah, just to like double click on that a little bit. I'm I've not really heard many people talk about the connection between buddhism and unpacking trauma like often they seem like like shadow work and cleaning up versus waking up they seem like two different paths so it's interesting that you you think they're related i think that's got to do with not a thorough translation and understanding of cognition Mm -hmm. and metacognition right which are the very building blocks of of perspective taking and of 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 growth you know, so you have to be able. Well, what did the Buddha mean when he talked about dukkha? 
right? Reactivity. Well, reactivity essentially is the effect of multi-generational trauma within the nervous system. So the first mm. thing is to understand that the whole thing, the whole thing from the point of view of um, contemplative psychology is about varying levels of trauma. What happens with trauma? Right. Because right. at the deepest levels of mind, when we experience trauma, even before it becomes um, like kind of patted in the body, is that awareness itself, which is an unbounded open field, becomes fused to the attentional system. So right. the attentional system, it, it, you know, is there to see like what's going on. And if your um, inherent nature of like of, of being is an open field, but you're threatened, and you're threatened so much that that you're fused to the attentional system, now you've lost. Mm -hmm recognition of the open the openness of your experience now if mm. this is continued mm. generation by generation you have a, a tendency even as you're in a in the womb for the for the physiology of of awareness which is more open to be clouded by the the conditioning that causes you to grab onto your attentional system to to search to see what's going on and once mm -hmm. that happens, mm -hmm. then there's a whole snowball effect developmentally because the attentional system is the center of the self-structure because it's what you attend to moment by moment that maintains a sense of self. Right. So if you're fused to the attentional system, now you're fused to the self-structure. Mm -hmm. And of mm -hmm. course, if that self-structure is built on an attentional system that itself is at a survival level, then the self-structure itself is now contaminated right from the very beginning by the chemistry and the physiology and the psychology of trauma, of grab. And then, of course, what happens is, is you're then actively projecting that every moment into your experience. That's what the self does. It's, you know, projects. So... Um, of course, if that's the background effect of what we've inherited, that's our original sin, so to speak. That's mm -hmm. what we've inherited. Then, of course, recognizing the deeper, more open di um, dimensions of human experience becomes more inaccessible because we are fused. So in Buddhism, the term ignorance is probably best translated as confusion, and confusion means literally fusion, literally fusion with the attentional system. Mm. So the cause is trauma, mm. but not just your trauma, but your parents, grandparents, great-grandparents' trauma, your culture's trauma, right? The fact that the, that the body-mind is on survival settings. It's on the factory settings. When you get it, it's on factory settings. Right. And <laughs> if you're lucky, maybe your family lineage has less grab, but generally factory settings put you on survival until you learn how to um, upgrade, right, to uh, something that isn't just kind of survival. Mm -hmm. Is that, yeah. So that's, yeah, it does. that's how. Yeah, um, it's, it's super interesting. I've, I've never heard anyone describe it in that way before. And, and it sounds like, like, correct me if I'm wrong, that trauma creates a, a narrowing of the attentional system and 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 like you say a fusing of attention to 
the background awareness. Is that, am I getting that right? As one of the defenses, I mean, you could also like yeah. pop out as a, as a defense, but sure. one yeah. of the defenses, yes, exactly, is a narrowing and a fusion. And then within that, that becomes your identity. Your basis of operation is now fused. To, and, and not only that, if everybody is doing that around you, but they're talking norm- to that part of you. It's normalized. Yep. Rather than reinf- talking reinforced. like this, hey, Johnny, I. Right. If if you <laughs> everybody is talking to that, we yeah. we then lock into that. Oh, that's who I am. That's who we are. Yeah. So a, a couple of things come to mind. One is um, I, I heard a story that well, when when the Buddha allegedly awakened under the Bodhi tree, that the ground shook underneath him. And, and part of me wondered if that was almost a reference to he was shaking and almost like shaking out some of that survival trauma. And that became a catalyst to some of these deeper states. Um, and, and, and there's a question that's really alive in me right now is, is related to this connection between suffering and trauma. And like, Im- imagining, say, from the perspective of like the one, the great intelligence, evolutionary desire, um, this this thing that is forwarding this grand cosmic adventure. What what is the role that the the trauma or the suffering serves in this? And 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 maybe to give some context, in in my experience, my most powerful, let's say, like awakening moments emerged on the other side of moving into and through some of this like deep grief and emotional pain. And I'm just I'm really curious, like, what is going on here? <laughs> I don't what, what, kind, I don't, what comes up I, I, yeah I don't I don't believe that it is necessarily a part of the process it's part of the process because of the mess we find ourselves in right mm-hmm. that, that um, we have as a species experienced significant amounts of trauma um, and that that needs to be digested and cleaned up first, right? And to the degree that you do that, you get you become happier and less reactive and more present. Do I don't believe that that's I don't believe that that's necessarily the way it has to be. Meaning, if we do the work that we're meant to do as a culture and then as families and individuals a couple hundred years from now, I don't necessarily, I don't believe that um, young people and children will have to go through the kind of confusion that we're mm. experiencing now. And I think that it's just um, a part of where we find ourselves in history. And mm. again, I, I have a slightly different take on history than, you know, most kind of evolutionary spiritual perspectives got it yep and and what do you think is the connection between let's say shadow work and reclaiming our power and and reclaiming that like vital life force that does seem to live in some of the more shadowy explorations well again it's only shadowy because of the nature of how our culture chooses 
to affirm and to, and, and what it chooses to affirm and what it chooses to negate. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's, you know, and also what your family chooses to affirm and what it chooses to negate. Mm-hmm. But do I think that that's a necessarily part? No, but it's just, again, it's related to the, to the trauma and the defenses and what you say yes to and what you say no to. But of course, to the extent that you are able to reclaim, you know, reclaim, um, free will and presence from systems that are unconscious either hidden or unconscious in their reactivity then awareness expands right and presence deepens Hmm. so Mm -hmm. it's it's a vital part of um particularly those those spiritual traditions that understand alchemy um the 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 digestion of um, unconsciousness within the body is understood to be the path. Mm. Mm-hmm. Like the like the digestion of the shadow is the path. Right. Yeah. You know you don't you don't become awakened by awakening what is even more what is awake even more. You become awake <laughs> by awakening darkness. Right. Yeah. I think that's what I was getting right. to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's always a cycle, right? Meaning, you know, the more stable awareness is and the brighter it is and the and the more capacity it has to see things as as empty from a Buddhist perspective, I to see that things are constructed and therefore they are not as solid as you think they are, mm-hmm. which is maybe the up the, the kind of the 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 coming up the cycle. The more I recognize that, the more powerful and potent my awareness is. Then when I descend down into the depths of hell and into the material, then I'm able to digest more because I'm less reactive because I don't take it so personally, which then when I come back up, it means that now awareness is brighter. Mm-hmm. It can be clearer, more awake, and then it can penetrate back down. This, so, that, so that cyclic process is um, – that's one of, the, one of the dynamisms of the path. Mm. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, and something else that I'd love to explore is part of what drew, drew me to your work is, is your kind of weaving of all of these different technologies and practices. And I know you have the, the nine disciplines on your, on your website. And there are things like, I think uh-huh. you described it as the orchestra of ancient healing wisdoms and practices, which, which I, I really fucking love. Like, that's amazing. And weaving in integral maps and shadow work and I'd love to hear a little bit more about like this approach and, and how you chose these different disciplines and also the role of psychedelic work that you see in this path as well. Sure. Well, the first thing is, I think with any path, you have to have a, a very good understanding of human development mm-hmm. because, um, <laughs> because that's what we're talking about. Right. <laughs> so you've got to understand, you know, um, uh, that there are, let's say, you know, 12 stages of development, right? Going from complete fusion to, you know, early kind of early um, attached, the attachment system coming online, early the self system coming on online, concrete operational thinking, formal operational thinking. Um, so we've got to understand that there's a skeletal structure, right? And at each of those stages of development, has therapies 
that address the specific developmental injury at that stage, right? If someone yeah. has a, a, um, a script pathology, and so a script pathology is um, a kind of cognitive distortion, doing a bunch of like attachment work on helping them feel safe might not necessarily address the fact that actually what they need to do is reprogram their cognition. Mm. Right. So, so first you've got to have an understanding of, of, you know, pre-personal, personal, and transpersonal, right? What those tiers of development are. Um, so that's fun because you've got to understand what it is that you're working with. And then when it comes to integration, then you can look at um, what are the the best practices that address the spe- each specific level of development, and then what is what's what are the cognitive and metacognitive and affective dynamics of those practices that make it effective for healing for healing that level. Hmm. Um, you know, part of the part of the challenge we have is we have a this is a big part of my work is, is we have a tower of Babel. We have like so many practitioners and so many practices and we don't yet have a tradition, a contemporary tradition, mm. a fourth turning tradition where they have been integrated to the extent that now we have um, an integrated path, right? Mm. That's part of what needs to happen in my mind in the next 20, 30 years. Right. Because you don't, if you don't have a, if you don't have big enough organizations that have research and development departments, you're not able to actually, uh, you know, it would, it would be like trying everybody trying to build an iPhone by themselves. <laughs> mm-hmm. Not going to happen. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so that's, you know, so you have to be able to integrate like psychodynamic psychology with like the best of, um, which is kind of pre-personal with the best of kind of personal self psychology with transpersonal stuff. So you got to have the theory, you got to understand the theory, and then you got to understand the, the practices at each of those stages. And then you can synthesize because honestly, there is only, um, there's only one path, <laughs> which, mm-hmm. there's a, which is the human path, like the, the great human tradition. And my, my sense is because of the, the trauma that we've experienced, it is fractured Mm. And part of the work is bringing those pieces to back, back, and seeing where they fit in together, so that we can articulate what it, what that human path looks like. Are there variations in terms of typology going through that? Definitely. So you also have to ha- have an understanding of typology type. When it comes to practices, you've got to be able to understand the context of a practice, like what time did that was that practice developed in, and for whom. Because a practice that was developed for fourth century Tibetans might not take into account some of the dynamics for 21st century Westerners. Social media. So even though <laughs> that dopamine part hijack. Might, what's that? Social media or dopamine hijack that, yeah, that we have right. to deal with. Right. I imagine they didn't have back then. Oh yes, all those things. That's right. So um Yeah, so that's so that's kind of what we need to understand. Um and and the truth is is you know we're really at a point where we have all the technologies we do we have we you know from the contemplative side we have technologies that go the we have access to technologies that go all the way to rainbow body now um on the therapeutic side we have access to therapies that address every single level hmm. um 
part of the challenge is there aren't necessarily enough people who have the cognitive developmental capacity because understanding how these things fit together itself is a 30 year study, right? It's, mm. you know, I mean, we can, we could, we can shorten it down now. Um, but it's, but, um, it's also frankly, the interest in, in understanding something like that is also developmental. Mm. Like most, many people aren't interested in, you know, they want to grab onto one particular way of, of thinking mm-hmm. rather than an integrative approach. Um, so as to how to, how psychedelics fit into all of that, well, you see, in my mind, in the, in the great academies of this planet, whether it was in Egypt or, or the Elysian Mysteries in Greece or the great Nalanda University in India, um, or, you know, for that matter, the, the secret kind of Rosicrucian societies in and kind of occult uh, societies in Europe. Um, I mean, most people have no sense of their of like, you know, how science and mysticism and magic, if we go back to like the Elizabethan period, right, where actually science then was magic. There was no yeah. separation. Yeah. It was the idea that there's separation. That's this. It wasn't, and that psychedelics would not have been separated from chemistry and from mm-hmm. you know from practices, whether that's the Egyptians or the Elysian mysteries. Across you know, so so the problem is, is we've had it separated or cut out. Not only have we had our interiors kind of like hidden and controlled by the church and then and then kind of by science, um, but then we've also had the access to the chemistry, the alchemy suppressed, which means our alchemy is like 2,000 years behind where it should be. Right? Now, so when you take, you know, when you take medicines like 5-MeO, for instance, where which are like super refined and you're like, wow – or you know ayahuasca, which is the potency of the earth erupting. Well, um, imagine what it would have been like had we continued to work with those medicines for the last two thousand years, and the kind of capacities that we would have to support people. Mm-hmm. Right? Our, our sophistication. No, and so anyway, um, I, I think that part of the challenge is is, is we have to catch up, <laughs> right? Um, in terms of our understanding of these medicines um they can be used for deep healing right and to help clear up material they can be used to help stabilize awakening because to be to be able to maintain realization of the fundamental field no matter what is thrown at you that is an important part of practice and they can also help awaken people and give them glimpses of um openings into higher um states but then it's a matching grant then you've got to then you've got to match it with practice right um, so <laughs> in the kind of fourth training school that i'm in the process of building the use of psychedelics within a lifelong curriculum would be it has a role it has a role mm-hmm. you know in terms of initiating certain phases and yep. also in terms of helping support 
and also in terms of like group practice, you know, I think we're going to rediscover, mm. um, you know, sh sh kind of group practice with these medicines that helps us journey together into those realms, um, you know, and just and rediscover uh, magic and the capacity to, you know, work with other dimensions of reality that affect this one. Great answer. <laughs> so, something that comes to mind, particularly in the first half of that, is it sounds like there is a real, a very important role for the for the teacher or the guide in assessing someone's developmental stage, and then maybe giving a practice that is appropriate to that level. Is that is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, th that's. Um, I mean, that's that's one of the one of the roles of a, of a teacher is to be able to, to, you know, one of the challenges we have developmentally is the loss of teacherly authority, right? And of course, the loss of, of hierarchy yep. in its original sense, meaning sacred order. And so hierarchy is an important dynamic in development. Like go to us when you, when, when you and I were five and we went to school, it was expected that the teacher at the front of the class was more developed in certain dimensions than, than us, right? And what you know, and and frankly, if I'm going to look for a teacher, and I, I that's what I'm looking for. I want somebody who can have perspectives on my experience. Sure. And obviously, um, you know, the teacherly authority has been damaged because of the lack of integration of psychological work by the traditions so that mm. then these, you know, teachers have fallen, have fallen because of that, their own lack of psychological work. But if we can find teachers who are psychologically integrated and, and also develop more developed than who, than we are, then they can offer perspectives on our practice because they've covered that territory. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, that's one of the things that we really need to, to rediscover. And, and you know this is about the sacred masculine you know like mm. that hierarchy is you know the sacred masculine and that that's okay <laughs> you know like you can't get rid of you know the sacred masculine mm. it has a place yeah absolutely and it, it feels like a lot of the the kind of male bashing or masculinity bashing has arisen from the fact that there hasn't been a good example of what healthy kind of father energy um looks like in society and we're maybe throwing it all out in the same thing we will i think for sure because because dark vader right the dark father has been mm. the one who's been you know um mm. running the show um mm. and complicit in that would be the the asleep feminine right um but if you think mm. that that but by just kind of destroying the nature hierarchy, that we're going to have, be able to build an equitable civilization that's incredibly naive and incredibly dangerous, right? Because development yeah. development is hierarchical. Sure, sure. Hmm. And uh, what are some of the practices that you teach in in your school and to your students, which you feel like it would be helpful if they were more widespread or, or some of the practices which aren't typically talked about 
you know, in, in, mm. in schools or, or academies today. Yeah. And, and one example I heard was, um, the, the idea of creating one's own deities and working with like personal archetypes, which I thought was a, a fantastic, fantastic idea. Mm. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, so that's, yeah, that's got more to do with the level of soul, right? Mm. Um, where you know, the soul itself is an archetype, right? It's a multi, multi-incarnational vehicle. And, um, and as such, you know, you can be a very well integrated personality, but have very little soul in, integrated in. But I think even more basic than that is the understanding of, of the relationship between non-duality, the earth itself and, and, and detachment, it's the safety of attachment, um, you know, the foundation, see, in the alchemical traditions, the metaphor is always like the stone, the alchemical stone, the philosopher's stone. Mm-hmm. It's not up there, but actually true nature is right beneath your ass cheeks right now. And the, and the, the ground <laughs> of being, no matter where it is, is met most directly as matter right so um many of the the contemplative traditions emphasize the nature of like spacious awareness and the the fundamental openness of experience but on a really pragmatic really literal level that shows up in the degree to which you and i are able to completely surrender to the ground that's beneath us because within because within your own direct experience, the ground that's beneath you is also within you, meaning it arises within your own experience. So what you think is the ground or earth or matter is actually the stability of your own awareness. It's, it, 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 it's the stability that arises within the field of awareness, but it's also made of awareness. Hmm. So of course, if you understand that, spirit exists in its most obvious form as matter and this is what they call in the tradition they call space in the tibetan tradition the ma the mother and of course matter is meta is mother right so the mother space itself is actually literally matter and we know this from science that actually the nature of the of what you're sitting on right now its nature is it's actually completely space. So then the degree to which you aren't completely surrendered into matter. Now, if you understand that, then you're able to work with non-duality in a very literal way. The non-duality isn't just some philosophical concept. It's also quite literal. Now, the attachment system, so the attachment system is like how we internalize our kind of caregivers, Right? your mother and your father, how they get internalized within your psyche to then become a source of safety and security. Hmm. Right? Now, the problem with that, of course, is that it means that your safety and security is based on the internal representation of an image right, of your mother and your father. And of course, an image is not stable. But from an archetypal perspective, your mother... You know, that the breast of your mother 
was the breast of the earth, the breast of matter itself, that actually our parents are expressions of the intelligence, the evolutionary intelligence of matter. So at a deeper level, right, we have to kind of uh, heal the representation of your mother as being this English woman, if she was an English woman, right? And all the foibles <laughs> that our parents had to understand that at an archetypal level, the yep. mother itself is the fundamental earth. Now mm. that needs to be understood experientially as that the sense of safety and the sense of support as being beneath us in every moment can then be internalized. And if you understand that that safety is also space, that then the fundamental basis of, of the psyche, the root chakra, if you will, can become non-dual with the ground, quite literally. And because in the psyche, safety, the root chakra, is the fundamental, is the most important mental factor for the whole developmental process. And frankly, the, your degree, my degree of insecurity is what causes grab along the way, right? If you and I yep, felt yep. completely safe and completely <clears throat> secure, it'd be like, just like development would just like slough off. We would just open up. <laughs> so, yeah. so if we take care of that fundamental base right at the beginning, and, and so most contemplative practices are heading upwards or somewhere, but you know, really what we do is like, Hey, let's go really go and, um, develop a deep abiding non-dual openness to the ground and then and then from that build a practice up what happens is a very different unfolding because then you understand that actually um the tendency in old spirituality was to go kind of like up Mm -hmm. and and the tendency in kind of like postmodern spirituality is to like emphasize forward like the evolutionary forward as if that was more you know which is different from them up and then our culture likes to go out we like to you know let's scale evolutionary spirituality <laughs> right wide forward and up <laughs> Rather than understanding the archetypal dimensions, that's fine, but there's also down and back and in. And so you mm. have to know what are the yep. archetypal dimensions that are default, that they're on default, right? You automatically, we want to go forward because we're Westerners. We're like, where is this taking us? And automatically, we're going to tend to go up and we're going to tend to go wide. So right at the very beginning, if we really want to understand a path of non-duality and the path of the sacred is always right here, we've got to make sure that right from the very beginning, it's back and down and in. <clears throat> and then from that place, engage the tech, all these, the, you know, these technologies, these meditative technologies, taking that into consideration. And that, that leads to a very different, a very different journey. Yeah, this, this is really powerful. The only person. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I was just—I was just going to say I'm kind of connecting dots internally around. So I also work as a, as a breath worker, and the degree to which 
a client feels safe in the space is pretty much the degree to which they're able to move through and process things that are stored. And in in my own experience, that's right. generally that sense of safety, it, it lives down, it like bringing the breath down into the belly and the pelvic floor, it equates a sense of embodied safety. And you can see people relax usually at the end of journeys where they start to bring breath into that area and there's this softening. And, and it's really interesting that say people going on the spiritual path and, and going like up and out, it's maybe because they don't have that grounded safety. And so they're, they're kind of escaping into non-duality as opposed to working on increasing that capacity for like trust in life. It, you know, maybe that is the degree to which we, we trust in ourselves and we trust in life is the degree to which this developmental uh-huh. unfolding almost like happens on its own. Well, I think, yes. I mean, the going, the, the going up, growing up is a, is a dimension, right? I mean, it's, there's nothing wrong with that. It's when we transcend, but we don't include. So, you know, rather than transcending and then include, I'm like, okay, include and then transcend. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and, and the most, if you think about the most, like the first experience that you and I had, hopefully entering into this world was we first bound on to mother. Like our first experience was coming in contact with other, like the chest of your mother, right? Something outside of yourself. So in that sense, if I was going to design a contemplative path, the first thing is rather than coming to your breath or rather than coming to your own interior experience, you actually come to the other, which is the ground, the mother, because that's the way that your psyche has actually been structured, that the first thing, first stage, first perspective was coming in contact with contact. Mm. Yeah. And that contact place... Like quite literally when your people are doing breath work and they lie on the ground and you, and you, and they feel the ground and they feel supported, that archetypal place is, was the first growth, first developmental perspective. So if we be, if we bring them right back to that and strengthen that and then go to the next, what was the next perspective that then came online? And then what was the next one? And that you are building or, or reformatting or reawakening each of those places as you go through the developmental stages then you're including the the you're, you know you're including the wisdom and the positive qualities at each stage right mm-hmm. so the root mm-hmm. it's like safety and security and support and then the second, you know, and then it, and then that can lead to vulnerability and pleasure because if you have safety and security support, you can relax your inner organs. You can relax your inner organs, and there's a sense of pleasure in the body, inherent pleasure that comes when you feel safe. Hmm. Once you have safety and pleasure, then you can bring online power. Because now power is going to be not power to get somewhere, but power to stay in the presence of what's right here, right now. Um, so, so understanding like the developmental stages that we all went through and then aligning contemplative practice in that way allows us to reformat, still have very sophisticated and very deep practice path but it being developmentally and, and trauma informed, which is mm. what our culture needs. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well said. That's powerful. Um, something else I'd like to touch on is you mentioned soul earlier and the work of Dr. Bill Plotkin has been very informative to my own kind of understanding. And he talks about, um, he calls it the journey of soul descent and that he kind of says there's this like cocooning and then usually, um, some kind of, some kind of crisis. And at the bottom of that, there is this, he, he, he calls it like finding our mythopoetic identity. That's like the, the image at the center of our life that we're then invited to then enact in the world. Um, is, is that related to your work with designing kind of unique individual archetypes? Well, yes, because we need to know what story is being played through us. And that isn't something that you have a choice in. Um, meaning, if you approach it in a mature way, it's an apprenticeship to the sacred gifts that you found yourself having been given. And whether we chose them or not, we don't know. You don't know right now. But what you do know is that's what's been presented to you. So this idea that you can be anything, I don't think is helpful because at a certain age, you realize what it, you know, like what is the Buddha family? What is it that's trying to get expressed through you? So there's a, so the sensitivity to the mythopoetic dimension, mythos, you know, means story. It's like awakening to the story, not just your story, but then our story. Um, and of course, soul is used in a number of different ways. Like the Jungians, you, you know, there tends that there can be more of a mythopoetic dimension to the use of the term soul. I mean, I think that I would include that. Um, but for me, soul also has a, um, is also a, a real trans incarnational structure. So the story has to include what more than one lifetime mm. right now, pragmatic. Why is that? Well, pragmatically speaking, even if what I say isn't true, pragmatically speaking, one of the things we can say about higher stages of development and more mature human beings is they consider more of a span. Right. Multi-perspectival. Right. So, in it, right. So the more of the span and the sense of time, for somebody who is viewing that viewing what it is they're doing within the frame of multiple lifetimes, but taking that very seriously is going to be more mature in my mind in literally what they're, what they're doing with their lives and what they're building and what they're going to leave behind than somebody who's just kind of, um, who somebody whose story is, is limited like that. Mm. Of course, within, within the traditions, within all the esoteric traditions, right? Whether that's Kabbalah, esoteric Christianity, um, you know, esoteric, um, you know, Hinduism or Buddhism or Taoism, reincarnation is understood to be a fact of the path. So, you know, pragmatically speaking for Westerners who don't know that, that's fine. But you have to understand that every belief is psychoactive. So if you're going to construct a belief system, you better make sure that it's the most positively psychoactive belief system. Because all belief systems are empty. They're all constructed. So the question is, what, what is the belief system 
knowing like that you're not fused to a belief system that you're actually using the belief system might like you might use breath work right right like yeah. there's all kinds of different breath work out there some isn't that good some is really good there's all kinds of belief structures out there at some point you will have to use a belief structure to stabilize what it is that you know um and that's you know cosmology <laughs> And understanding of larger cycles of you know the planet and of the soul and of the evolution of solar systems, that's always been a part of mystery traditions. So that our story should be grand enough and big enough to be able to span you know multiple lifetimes. And then interestingly enough, then when you do that, of course, what happens is because soul is consists at least within my understanding you see of three of a number of fundamental dimensions one is um like the the atman the attentional system itself mm -hmm. the other is um what's called the buddhic atom which is your access to the kind of interconnected field of universal love and how that love is encoded with information about the whole and then the third aspect has got to do with abstract mind. By that, I mean um, your intuition can only function. Intuition uses abstract concepts, the tarot, the runes, um, looking at birds in the sky. They mean certain things, mathematics. To the extent that you have uh, a good palette of abstract symbology, Mm -hmm. then the soul can communicate because it communicates at a very abstract level, right? It's so um, in that sense, that's why in the Buddhist tradition, although they don't use the term soul, they might use the term Sambhogakaya, it was well understood that a, a really good education was actually necessary for a bodhisattva to become a bodhisattva because they needed material to work with mm -hmm. yeah um, wow. so yeah so soul it, i agree was it plotkin mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> you know so yeah so plotkin's conception of soul i agree with um because he, he's particularly like going back and let's really include what we lost right like we lost those dimensions of soul right which are kind of the the life cycle that he brilliantly does in terms of the various themes yeah but also soul has evolved so it also actually includes more abstract stuff that needs to get integrated into that you know multi-lifetime in my sense to have more of a sense of what of what that of what soul means Mm, yeah wow <clears throat> there's a lot there um I, I love that idea of certain beliefs as being psychoactive and perhaps one one question um i remember you saying something around we don't yet have the the structures or the the fertile field to facilitate the depth of work that needs to be done um what do you imagine might some of these structures might look like and what are maybe some examples that feel like they're, they're like on the right track or they're like getting close in terms of structures of structures interior or exterior 
them? I, I'd say both. I'd say like the interior um, kind of beliefs right. that, that you just mentioned and the sure. external conditions that create the sufficient safety for this for this path sure. to be yeah. kind of walked. Well, you know, within the within the esoteric traditions, it's understood the idea of, of what we would call a mandala is is what we're talking about here. So a mandala, you know, so so there's spiritual teachers who are shamans, there are spiritual teachers who are philosophers, there are teachers who are who are seers, and there are prophets. And now we're talking about spiritual teacher as architect. Mm. Okay? So right, whether it's the architecting of the pyramids or of you know of the temples. So, or, or of organizational structures where the outer and the inner. So, um, mandalas, right? When you see the mandalas in Tibet, those are actually two dimensional diagrams of a temple from above, right? So, mm. when you take, when you draw a mandala in 3D, it becomes a building, mm. right? And, and the building, of course, is the building that you, that you enter into in your practice. Um, so, you know, if we look at like what's the the last probably the last mandala that was probably built in the West um, was probably probably the Freemasons, right? Oh, wow. So, what do I mean by that? Well, if you think about where history was, Europe, kind of papacy and monarchs, and a structure needed, a graded structure needed to transition our culture to modernity. Freemasons in Europe were a huge, performed a function, a sacred function, 17th, 18th century, right? Probably by the 18th century's beginning, but it performed, it created a space where certain conversations could happen. You know, many of the ideals of democracy that we, that, that you and I take to be just the way things are actually happened inside of those lodges mm. and they happened because it was understood that they needed to develop a graded, a graded system that you could make sure that by the time you got to the level of the inner circle, that everybody was on the same page and had mm. the same level of education. So what happened there is the external structure of the external organization was also the interior structure of which you went through inside so that the outer and the inner were synchronized. Fascinating. By, yeah. you know, so that then you and I could have a discussion around human rights and, and these kinds of things in a space where we both had gone through a similar kind of education. Mm. So, you know, we, and that initiatory process, you know, the, the degrees, we had the same thing in, 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 you know, in education, going through degree by degree by degree, knowing that actually when you completed the degrees, you were then equal right you're a member of the guild but whilst going through the stages there was a hierarchy so i think you know part of what we we need is that um to relook at obviously that then that you know the freemasons then had their own shadow but you've got to understand what the function was at a time when there needed to be a space for something like that so mm. you know what i see in in the kind of progressive field of spirituality and human development is the you know the 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 necessity to actually build um, an educational system that provides a really thorough journey, cohort journey. So you're going with, with your brothers and sisters through a graded um, education so that the next plateau, that there is 
shared enough experience with enough people Mm -hmm. that then we can build culture and civilization from a new place. I think the challenge that I see right now is a lot of people have the cognitive capacity to intuit and see where it is that we need to get to. Mm-hmm. But actually, to get there, people need more training together <laughs> because mm-hmm. it's the together part of it that develops trust, not only in your own experience, but trust in one another. And that doesn't happen in a weekend, and it doesn't happen in a couple of retreats. That has yeah. to happen over an extended journey of a number of years so that yeah. then you are you know your brother next to you and then what happens is you don't need teachers anymore, not the way that right in the beginning you might need teachers. Yes, maybe mentors, but now the peers have been educated to a level where you are you can be seen, right? And you can be supported and you can be checked. Um, that's that's really that's what I see is needed, and that's where my that's where my interest is lies. Uh, you know, and, and of course, that involves bringing together you know, a number of different of teachers and building the kind of organization that we really haven't seen yet. Mm. Mm. Wow, wow, that's that's powerful. And one curiosity that comes to mind is what role do you see rites of passage or, or vision quests or things taking part in that because it, it feels like even having that shared journey i would imagine there have to be certain like initiatory experiences or moments where there is like a, a step sh- or a phase shift in the level of development well, to right, create, exactly. create, create that bonding yeah absolutely so that's where ontological design comes in right i mean you know what, what I, i'm looking at like what does it take to design a 30-year journey not like you know, not a year like because that's when you when that's when you're involved in a practice and a tradition and a religion. That's what you're doing. And if you and I know we're on a thirty year journey, then we can start asking ourselves, what kind of resources do we need for a thirty year journey? Okay, well, if I'm going on a thirty year journey, I'm going to at least invest a certain amount of money per year. So then we can start thinking about that's how much money needs to be used to build to build that kind of infrastructure. Right, because if I'm going to go on a journey, I don't know. I'll put a set up. You know, I'm like, oh, it's going to cost this amount. That's what you then use to then build these initiatory, you know, phases. Because yes, you're absolutely right. You need to have phases which bring you, which break something open. I mean, that's where psychedelics right. is super useful. You know, you have an initiatory, a week long, five ceremonies, right, and then you and then you move into the next phase. Um, mm-hmm. So when it's designed. When these things are designed, it was understood by the the adepts that you that, that you are building an egregore. So an egregore is a subtle is the subtle energy form of a tradition that mm-hmm. functions as an intelligence. Right. So you you just like you're building an individual, and we have stages within us. So does the path have stages? That creates an energy field that then anybody who's coming into the to this energy field of a tradition is influenced by the intent of that egregore. Mm-hmm. And that's what building a mandala is. You're building a um a, a holographic death star. <laughs> right. <laughs> that ena- that Lo- enables- loving the Star Wars references. <laughs> right? Yeah. It's essentially a time machine, a color chakra 
that when people come in, they come in in one time and they come out moving through to another time, right? In a sense of, you know, we have to, we, we need a new time. But to do that, you have to create a time machine, which is what a evolution, you know, process is. It speeds up evolution and takes you to a, you know, to another time. Um, Interesting. Do you mean the perception of time yeah. or do you mean the like felt experience of the, 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 the shift of time? Well, I mean that like, I think time, for instance, is one of the ways that we synchronize together. So right now we're synchronized in 2022 okay. in, in this irregular calendar. It's been, like so the story, the calendar, story of time calendar, and, and the structures of time. Sto- that story but it's the yeah. way that you and I come together, right? Right. In right. this story. So yep. once you build a, a, a mandala, within that you have another time because you have another practice cycle. The difference mm-hmm. between spirituality and religion is spirituality is something that you just do by yourself and religion is something that we do together. Mm-hmm. But to do it together, we have to synchronize in time. And when you synchronize in time, right, you start to create, a, you know, like right now you and I are synchronizing according to the time of this culture of and this civilization. December, Gregorian calendar, yeah. Right, exactly. Rather than finding rhythms... Now, once you then establish yourself, you know, a collective on a new rhythm, it begins to generate its own morphogenic field. And that's what enables you to begin to build something new. It's difficult to build something new when the background field itself, the timing mechanism, the beat, is the beat of the cycle that you're actually trying to get on top of. Mm. How can you get out Mm. of it? You can't get out of it. Mm. Right. It, 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 unless, of course, you're. So this is the you know the function of of practice calendar. Yeah, right. and, and essentially, it, yeah, resynchronizing people back onto natural time. Right. Right. Wow. Um, is this what you're what you're imagining with with your work and and with with the Dharma Army, like like creating this kind of. 30 year journey yeah, exactly those are the, yeah <laughs> yes exactly you know with with my friends not just myself mm. but you know I, i'm a i'm a i think one of my skills is i just spent the last 30 years thinking about how do you architect this mm. and, and that's you know that's one skill but obviously um you know we're interested in using um you know holacracy and other variants of kind of governance systems in terms of building you know, systems of governance that work well. Obviously, there's a difference between the community, if you will, and and the training, the training facility. And by, by that, I mean that, you know, training like a university tends to be hierarchical. And you kind of want that because you, but the community, you want to be more democratic, right? So, so you have to understand yeah. how do you have different, governance systems working within a single ecosystem so you can have the best of egalitarian democracy and the best of kind of hierarchical um meritocracy right and then how do you build that in such a way we yeah sorry you you keep going (laughs) no no i want to hear what jamie says (laughs) 
Jamie, his, his, the third chapter on this book was around like ethical cult building and, and like, how do you make sure that someone doesn't grab the ring of power and, and builds, yeah, the conditions for an ethical cult, which is, sounds like what you're talking about. Yeah. Except I just say culture, not cult. Like, um, <laughs> you know, cult is when it's small culture is when you build it to go viral. Right. Yeah. Right. Like, like a, like a culture with, with within which you are, um, growing something. Hmm. Right. Yeah. Huh. Okay. This, this has been fascinating. Um, would it be all right to ask a few rapid fire questions and then we'll wrap, wrap up. Go for it. Yeah. Rapid fire. Sure. Okay. Um, first question is what is one concept or practice that you wish you'd known earlier? Trust. What is something that took you a long time to learn personally? And this could be the same answer. <laughs> well, it's actually trust, yes, but it's because it took a long time for me to trust what it was that was coming through and check it and check it and check it. Yeah. So, um, yeah. And is that your teachings around the fourth turning and the, the vision there? Yeah. I mean, there's that, I think, um, Yeah, and also having confidence in yeah what it is that wants to move through one, irrespective of whether you want that or not. So yes, yeah, exactly. What is the first recommendation <clears throat> you'd give to a listener who is looking to separate the fusion of their awareness and their attention. I think to take time lying on the ground, take time, you know, learning to really let yourself be held. And then when you stand up, when you walk through the day, track in every moment to what degree right now am I letting myself be held? What creative impulse is most alive in you right now? What it is we've been talking about. And last question, what is your greatest hope or wish for the planetary Dharma army in the coming years or decades? I, I really hope that we all learn to work together. That's my greatest wish, that we find out a way to build um, systems of governance, 
that we can actually build a, um, you know, an organization and build villages and build schools, you know, and build culture. But to do that, we have to learn to trust one another. To be willing to go on a journey together. Well, this has been an absolute pleasure, John. Um, where can listeners right. find out more about your your training, your book, your work? What's the best place? Um, yeah, so the the organization's uh, website is karunamandala.org. Private practice website is samadhiintegral.org. And find out more details there. Beautiful. And I'll include those in the, in the show notes as well. Um, and I'd like Great. to clo close with a, with a line from Rilke. He said, try to love the questions themselves and live them now. Perhaps then gradually without noticing it, you will live your way into the answer. With that in mind, what is the question that is most alive in your consciousness right now? And what question might you leave our listeners with? How do we love deeper and how do we love wider and how do we love higher? Mm. How, how do we you know, set the world uh, a fire in this next coming year with love? Fuck yeah. Beautiful. <laughs> Fuck yeah. That's right. Thank Fuck you. Yeah. Thank you so much. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed this conversation. It would mean a lot to me if you could take a few seconds to open up your podcast app and give Curious Humans a shiny five-star rating. This not only helps more people to find it, but it will help me to get more awesome guests in the future. And if you're not already subscribed, then the Curious Humans newsletter is where I share monthly morsels of interestingness and podcast updates. You can sign up for that at johnny.life. That's J-O-N-N-Y dot life.